Good morning, everyone. It's good to see you today. We're glad you could join us on this big day. In uh, 1 Corinthians 13, verse 13, we read these words. It says, three things will last forever, faith, hope, and love. And the greatest of these is love. Over the past couple of weeks, we've seen lots of images like this one of the two hurricanes, uh, Harvey and Irma. And these hurricanes, even though they didn't affect us directly, unless you have family or friends in the area, they have reminded us again of all the things around us and in our life that will not last forever. Only three items last. Faith, what we decide about God. Hope, which is what we decide to live for. And love, the way we treat others. These three shape every decision that we make, and it will be all that matters in the end, these three. Now, love is the greatest. Why is love the greatest of these three? Well, I think it's because it's the only one that directly impacts other people. I mean, you can have faith and hope all by yourself, but if you're going to love, that requires at least one other person, and you make an impact on that person the way you do or do not love them. Now, I think the greatest is also the hardest. One of my favorite Gary Larson cartoons from the 80s and 90s is this one. It portrays God as a cook creating the world in a kitchen. Now, just to be clear, that's not how it happened, but this is the way the cartoon portrays it. And you can see all the different ingredients that God has used to go into the world and then kind of finish it off. And as it says here, just to make it interesting, he gets out a can of jerks and sprinkles jerks kind of throughout the entire world. And when I saw this, I thought, oh, that's, that's perfect. That's just exactly the way life is. Now, again, this is a cartoon. This is not the truth about how God made the world. But it illustrates the challenge that we have when it comes to this greatest of all efforts. We're surrounded by jerks, people who are seemingly impossible to love. And of course, if we're honest, the problem isn't just them. There's a good deal of jerkiness in us. We have our moments. We're not that easy to love also. And so if we're going to carry out this greatest of all endeavors, it's going to require a tremendous amount of courage to love. The day before his crucifixion, Jesus gathered with his disciples to celebrate the Passover. And at that meal, he told them that in just a few hours, the events would take a sudden turn for the worse. And he used a, a piece of bread at the beginning of the meal and broke it into pieces to illustrate how his body was going to literally be torn apart. And then at the end of the meal, he used a cup of wine to describe how his own blood was about to be shed and how he would give his own life on the cross. Now, to say the least, the disciples were shocked by what Jesus said. But then he said something that I think was even more surprising to them because it was about them. Here's what Jesus said in Matthew 26, verse 31. Then Jesus told them, this very night you will all fall away on account of me. Now, Peter, one of the 12 disciples, was the first one to react to what Jesus said, which was not unusual. If you read through the story of Jesus in the New Testament, Peter was the most verbal of the 12 disciples. So it's not unusual that Peter had something to say immediately. And this is what he said in verse 33. Peter replied, even if all fall away on account of you, I never will. Now, we don't know all of what was going on in Peter's mind, but knowing the story of Peter, I imagine that Peter was probably thinking something like this, and if he were to say it verbally, it would sound something like this. Lord, I, I can understand how you might question these other guys, but how could you ever question my courage? 
I mean, let's just review a few of the things that I've done to demonstrate my courageous connection and attachment and love for you. I mean, remember, I'm the only one that jumped out of the boat on that stormy day when we saw you walking towards us on the water in the Sea of Galilee. Now, granted, I didn't make it very far. I only made a couple steps and started to sink, but I'm the only one that even tried it. All the other guys, they stayed in the boat. No, I, I got out there and I tried to walk on water and come to you like you said. And then, Jesus, do you remember that other day when you were speaking and everybody got pretty upset with what you had to say and they got up and they decided to leave because what you were saying was really challenging to them. And they, they didn't want to be challenged. They didn't want to hear what you had to say. And so everyone that was listening to you left except for the 12 of us. And so you turned to the 12 of us, remember, and, and you asked us, are we going to leave also? And no one said anything. I was the only one to speak up. And remember what I said? I said, no, we're not leaving. At least I'm not. You have the very words of life. Where am I going to go? I declared and I demonstrated my commitment to you then. Now, Peter, honestly, he has a point. Peter would be the last one of the 12 disciples that you would expect would deny Christ. But in response to Peter's emphatic statement of commitment and love to Christ, Jesus says this in verse 34, I tell you the truth, Jesus answered, this very night before the rooster crows, before the sun comes up, you, Peter, will disown me, not just once, but three times. And if you've read the story or heard of the story, you know this is exactly what happened. Now, why did Peter deny Christ three times? Why not four times, two times, just once? Any number of denials would be a denial. Well, you could say, well, that's just the way it happened. But in the Bible, when something happens three times, it's God's way of putting a huge exclamation point on what's occurring. What God is saying is, if you were daydreaming, I, don't, I want you to wake up. Don't miss this. This is so important, it's going to happen not just once, not just twice, but three times in a row. So what is the point here? What is the point that God is making here? That Peter is a really, really, really bad guy? No. The point is that Peter has a heart just like our heart. Peter's like we are. Peter had enough courage to fight, but not enough courage to love. This is the way we are. You know, it takes courage to fight, to, to struggle with other people, but boy, it takes a whole lot more courage to love them. And on that night, Peter was ready for a fight. In fact, that night, he did draw his sword when Jesus was being arrested, and he took a swing, and Jesus immediately told him to put the sword down. Because Jesus, the battle that Jesus was fighting was not against people, but for people. And that required more courage than Peter had. Love is the greatest struggle, the greatest war that you and I will ever wage. It requires more courage than really anything else in life. It takes courage to fight, but it takes a tremendous amount of courage to love people, especially difficult people. Now, this story of threes didn't end with Peter's three denials. After the resurrection of Jesus, a few weeks later, Peter goes back to what he was doing before, probably discouraged. So he goes back to fishing. That's what he was doing when Jesus first found him three years earlier. And 
One morning after Peter's been fishing, Jesus appears on the shore and invites Peter and the other disciples that were with Peter to join him for breakfast. Now, you can just imagine the awkward silence that must be going on between Peter and Jesus. I mean, Peter's got to be feeling just horrible about the whole denying Jesus three times. Now, even though Peter's had something to say in almost every situation before this, Peter appears to be at a loss for words. And so Jesus thankfully breaks the silence by bringing up the elephant in the room. I mean, Jesus and Peter have seen each other, but it's all been around the celebration of the resurrection of Christ, and it's been in a crowd, and, and there just has not been a moment for this denial thing to be processed and dealt with. And there hasn't been words between them about this. So Jesus brings it up. This is what he says in John 21, verse 15. When they had finished eating. So what that means is they went through the entire meal in awkward silence. When they had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you truly love me more than these? Remember, this is exactly what Peter had promised. You know, everyone else may fall away, but not me. I, I love you, Jesus, more than anybody else. So this is a clear reference to that claim. And Jesus is saying, all right, let's, let's talk about this, Peter. Do you truly love me more than any of these other disciples, more than anyone else? Well, there it was, finally, out in the open. The question that had been lingering since the resurrection had finally come up. As I said, until now, it, there just really wasn't a moment to bring us up. Everyone had been celebrating. The focus had been on the amazing resurrection of Christ. And Peter, I assume, had been waiting for a moment like this. And therefore, he immediately blurted out a response. This is what it says in the next part of the verse. Yes, Lord, he said, you know that I love you. I mean, you can look inside my heart. You, you know all things. You've got to know that even though I denied you, I, I love you. Well, what would Jesus say in response to this? I mean, you can imagine Jesus might look up and smile and say, Peter, I know that you do. But Jesus said something that I don't think anyone could have expected. This is what Jesus said. Jesus said, feed my lambs. What? I thought we were talking about love. Now we're talking about sheep? What, what is he talking about here? I'm sure this is not at all what Peter expected to hear. And to make matters even more bizarre and honestly awkward, Jesus repeats himself two more times. He says, Peter, do you truly love me? Yes. Well, then take care of my sheep. Peter, do you love me? You know that I love you. You know I do. Well, then feed my sheep. Three times. Another set of three to match the three denials of Peter. Two exclamation points in one story. This is unusual. This is a sit up on the edge of your seat. Don't ignore this. Don't, don't just gloss over this. This is huge. What is Jesus saying here? Well, on the night of Jesus' arrest, Peter had declared that he loved Jesus more than anyone else. But like most, Peter had a hard time following through on that love, when the circumstances shifted. And Jesus wanted Peter, and by extension, all of us who would decide to follow Jesus in this greatest of all efforts to love the people that are in our life. 
Jesus wanted all of us to get very clear on, on the courage that love requires, the courage that it takes to really follow through on a commitment to love. Now, we don't usually see these two words together, the words courage and love. You know, we think of courage when it comes to a difficult task or accomplishment or maybe war. And then we think of love as kind of that touchy-feely part, that relationship side. We, we don't see these two together. But courage is essential to the challenge of love. And so in this story, Jesus wants us to be very clear on the two marks of courageous love. The first mark is this. Courageous love is about more about action than it is about emotion. Now, to be sure, love involves emotion. We, we don't miss that. Emotion is involved in love. But what really drives courageous love is action, not emotion. Courage occurs in spite of the emotion of fear. Courage moves forward in spite of the opposition. So it's more about action than emotion. Now, no one could have ever denied the strong emotion that Peter felt for Jesus on the night he betrayed him. But on that night, Peter discovered what we all eventually learn about love, and that is that our emotions are fickle, and they are no substitute for action. You see, it really didn't matter how deeply Peter felt about Jesus on that night, how, how strong his passion was. In the heat of the moment, just a few hours later, Peter did the exact opposite of what he had just passionately declared. It only took a few hours. Why? Well, it's because emotions are dependent on their surrounding conditions. Emotions will rise and fall completely dependent on what's going on around your life. Now, Peter, at the moment he declared this strong love and commitment to Christ, he was convinced that Jesus was about to be crowned the next ruler of Israel. And therefore, he was willing to die in that cause. But then, when they came to arrest Jesus, and Peter thought, this is the moment, and he pulled out his sword, and Jesus said, no, we're not doing that. At that moment, the conditions completely changed. And Jesus was arrested, and he was sentenced to die. And it became clear to Peter that now, given the new conditions, if I was going to stand up for Jesus, it meant I'm going to die in a losing cause. And his emotions didn't have the power for that. They didn't see that coming. And therefore, his strong feelings for Jesus just crumpled in those conditions. And since he had attached his strong commitment to Jesus, to his emotions, there was nothing to support the action that he had promised. So now, weeks later, sitting around a campfire, debriefing what had happened, Jesus wanted Peter to see exactly why it was that his love had failed. So three times, Jesus asked Peter if he loved him. Each time, Peter says, yes, I do. Now, we don't have audio or video of this exchange, but as you read through it, you can just imagine Peter's volume increasing, or at least his emotional intensity increasing, as every time Jesus asks him, yes. I do. Now, at first glance, this kind of looks like something a, a coach might do at halftime to get his team fired up emotionally. Doesn't it sound like that? Do you love me? Yes. Do you love me? Yes. Do you really love me? Yes. You know, head out into the field and 
take the team on. You know, it almost sounds like a kind of a love pep talk by Jesus. You know, Jesus might be saying, Peter, I'm getting ready to leave, and I need to get you so fired up. I need to get you as passionate as you possibly can, way beyond where you were on that night before I leave, because it's going to get tough. But that's not what Jesus was doing. Jesus wasn't trying to get them all fired up emotionally. That wasn't his point. And that's why after each increasingly emotionally emphatic statement of love by Peter, Jesus says the same thing. He calmly, simply says, feed my sheep. Why? Jesus was pointing to the action that love required, not the emotion that comes and goes. You see, Jesus had defined himself as the great shepherd. And those who decide to follow him are the sheep of his pasture, the ones he cares for. And Jesus is about to ascend back to heaven. And so he's saying to Peter, Peter, there's going to be a lot of people who decide to follow me. Right now, there's just a handful of you. But in a few weeks, there's going to be thousands. And they're going to need help. I need you to help them. I need you to take care of them. I need you to feed them. You see, the problem for Peter and for us usually is not that we lack the desire to love. The problem for Peter wasn't that he lacked a passion for Jesus. Peter had just gotten his emotions and his actions in reverse order. He had let his emotions lead the way that night. And when the circumstances shifted, they did not have the power to make it through the challenges of the night. So he betrayed the one he truly did love. You see, emotions, our emotions are kind of like the trailer part of a semi-trailer. Here's a picture of a semi-trailer going down a, a beautiful road. The trailer doesn't have an engine. It's connect, connected to the tractor that has the engine. And that's the order that they have to come in. If you reverse them, then that trailer can only, or that semi can only move forward on a downhill grade. Our emotions are like the trailer in a semi. They're designed to follow, not lead. So if you put them in front and ask them to pull your actions, they can do it for a while and in certain circumstances, but eventually they're going to fail. Now, what confuses us about relationships, especially romantic relationships, is that most of those kind of relationships begin with our emotions leading the way. I mean, when I met my wife, my emotions is what engaged us in that relationship. I mean, I didn't walk up to her and say, hey, you know, I'm in my 20s. I should probably get married. So I guess we should date, see what happens. <laughs> no, no, that's not the way it worked. That's not the way it ever works. You know, I saw her and observed her, and I felt something. So eventually, I took action on that feeling. I asked her on a date, and we had such a good time, I asked her on a second date, and we continued to date, and after a year and a half, we got married. So it, it was my emotions that kind of sparked and got things going. And so we tend to think, well, that's just the way it has to be, because that's the way especially romantic love starts. But in the 32 plus years that my wife and I have been married, I have felt more than just emotional bliss. You know, it hasn't been unending emotion. It's been great, but it, every single day has not been like the first day I saw her. There have been times where we've both been pretty upset with each other. And in those moments, the feelings of love vanish. 
they leave because the conditions have changed and the emotions shift with the conditions. What occurs in relationships is we, we hit an uphill grade. And if the trailer of emotion is leading, because it doesn't come with an engine, things just stop. And they actually go backwards. You know, if you're going downhill, if everything's going great, it doesn't matter if the thing leading has no engine, no power, really. Gravity is providing all the momentum that you need. The circumstances are moving things forward. And you're thinking, I really, really love this person. And what's really going on is everything's going great. But when you get to the bottom of a hill in the relationship, any relationship, and, and you will get there. No matter what the relationship is, you will get there. When you get to the bottom of the hill, I know you, it may be hard for you to imagine, especially if you've got young kids. Oh, you're just over the moon in love with these little ones. But I promise you, there will come a day <laughs> when the love isn't coming from them and it's not going back to them. Uh, you're committed to them, but they're, they're not filling you up and... And they let you know that you're not that important to them. I mean, it, it'll shift. So when you get to the bottom of the hill in a relationship, if the trailer of emotions is leading the way, well, you've got a Peter-sized problem. This is why there are so many broken relationships, especially in our culture, because we're all about the emotion of love, the passion of love. And what that means is we really only know how to love people on a downhill grade when things are going well. We, we, when things get tough, we just, we just don't know what to do. But the engine of love is in the actions, not in the emotion. The emotions often follow, but that's not where the power is. So what is the secret of love? In our culture, it's feel something. And if you don't feel something then try to rekindle the passion. I mean, if you can rekindle the passion, especially in a romantic relationship, great. But what if you can't? Well, that's not the secret to love anyways. The secret to love is not feel something. The secret to love is do something. And not just anything. We're going to be talking about the things that you can do, the actions that you can take, especially in difficult relationships, especially when you're in the uphill grade part of a relationship. Now, if your emotions follow when you do something, that's great. But if that's a requirement, well, then the number and type of people you can love is limited to the circumstances. And Jesus did not offer exclusions to this command to love. He said, he repeated the command of the Old Testament, love your neighbor. Now, your neighbor isn't just the person living across the street or in the apartment next door. Jesus made it clear your neighbor is anybody who is in your life. Well, you, you can't control all of that. What that means is you can't control the movement of jerks. They can come in and out of your life. I mean, you can go to work tomorrow, and there's a new person next to you, sitting in the desk next to you, and they could be a jerk. Or you're, you can get a new boss who's a jerk. You could become a jerk. <laughs> I mean, you, just, you don't know. Things change. Things shift. Now, not only is love defined by how you feel, it's not defined 
by how they feel. So not only is it not defined by how you feel, it's not defined by how they feel. What I mean by this is we get confused thinking that if, if I don't feel something, then I'm, I, I can't love. No, you can. But sometimes we switch it and we think if the other person doesn't feel loved, then I must not be loving them. Now, that may be the case. And if someone's really upset with you, you may need to sit down and figure out, now, am I doing something wrong here? But don't make the simple conclusion that just because this person's upset with me, I'm not loving them. That's not necessarily the case. Because love is not defined primarily by the emotion. It's by the action. You know, the greatest act of love to ever occur here on earth was when Jesus offered up his life on the cross. So in that moment, did everyone who gathered around the cross, did they feel the love that Jesus was demonstrating on that cross? No, if you read the story, while Jesus hung there giving his life for them, they jeered him, they mocked him, they spit on him. They spewed hatred on him. It sure didn't look like love, but it was the pinnacle of love. Love demands courage, and courage is not an emotion. Most acts of courage are done in spite of the emotion of fear. If courage requires that I don't feel any fear, well then, it's not really courage. Courage may be scared to death and trembling in its boots, and it decides I'm going to move forward despite of how scared I am right now. It's independent of the circumstances. So in this series, we're going to be focusing on the acts of love, the courageous acts of love. In a difficult relationship, you may have very little or absolutely no emotional reason to act in love. And you will need to lead with action, not with emotion. And in some cases, you don't need to do that for years. So courageous love is more action than emotion. Then second, the second mark that Jesus talks about in the story is courageous love is more about practice than it is about promise. It's more about practice than promise. You know, right after Peter had promised his undying love for Jesus at that Passover meal, Jesus gave him and a handful of the other disciples a chance to practice, to get ready for the challenge that they were all about to face. What Jesus did is he took his disciples to a garden called Gethsemane, just outside Jerusalem, and asked them to to stop and to watch, keep an eye out for him and for them, and to pray for him and for them, for themselves and for him. And then Jesus went off in a little distance, and, and he prayed. He wrestled with the courage that it would be required to demonstrate his love for us by giving his life. What Jesus was saying is, okay, you've, you've just, Peter, you especially, but all of you have declared your love for me. Now, here's what you need to do. Do this. And so they went out. Jesus left them at a spot. He went off another spot. An hour later, he returned. And they were all fast asleep. <laughs> so he asked them again, okay, can you guys just wake up here and just for an hour? Keep an eye out for me, watch out for yourselves, and then pray. Something big's about to happen. You've got to get ready. Pray. Well, Jesus went off again and came back. Guess what? Fast asleep. Guess how many times this happened? Three. 
three sets of three. Exclamation point on top of exclamation point on top of exclamation point. This is unusual. This isn't just some random part of the story, Jesus telling his disciples to pray and to watch. Jesus is making a point here that fits into the overall story. This is what we read in verse 40 of Matthew 26 about this scene. It says, Then Jesus returned to his disciples and found them sleeping. And he says, Could you men not keep watch with me for one hour? He asked who? Peter. Okay, Mr. Big Promise. Peter, you you just made a promise to die for me. All I'm asking is one hour. Could you you not do that? He didn't. What he's saying is, Peter, I don't think you realize what real love requires. It doesn't require just suddenly rising to the occasion in the big moment. No, it requires a lot of practice. Real love doesn't occur in the occasional big moments of life when you get to do something huge for the one that you love. No, real love occurs in those little moments, daily, weekly, monthly moments, like this one, where you get a chance to to practice love, not just once, but again and again and again and again. So Jesus said, just, all right, just start with the simple task of keeping watch for me and praying for me. If you do that, there's a chance you might be able to love me in the tough moment. But if you don't do this, you're not going to be ready for the big moment at all. Now, we, we do this kind of thing all the time. You know, as husbands, you know, we would defend our wives with our life. If someone came up and threatened them, I mean, we know what we would do. We would step in front, and we would defend them, and if necessary, we would die in defense of them. But, you know, if, if what the day requires, if what the moment requires is that we sit down and listen to them for just 15, I mean, really listen to them for 15 minutes? <laughs> oh, no, we, we don't got time for that. We're busy. And wives, you know, I, you do the same thing, kind of thing. You, know, you would defend your husband's honor if anybody, you know, attacked your husband's honor. You would tell other people, no, he's a great man, if necessary. You know, when it's just the two of you, you just can't seem to bring yourself to compliment the guy. You know, tell him something that he's doing well. All you can think of is, I can't believe he did this, and why didn't he do that? And it just just would take five minutes. We're just all like this. You know, we've watched all the movies of love, and we're like, oh, I would do that. But not this. Not, not the practice, not the in-the-trenches effort of love. It's in the little things that love will either grow or die. And we miss this. You know, when married people, for example, say they fall out of love, it's not because one day something suddenly happened. It's because for many days, nothing has happened. You know, that, that term, fall out of love. How long does it take to fall? You know, I could trip and fall right now. You, you, you just fall like this. And so we, we use that to kind of indicate that something suddenly shifted. That's not the way it works. It's that there hasn't been any practice or not enough practice over time to really do love. Love is the most difficult thing that you and I will ever do. 
You know, it's kind of like bench pressing a lot of weight. Now, I don't bench press, but I've watched guys do it. I've done it some, but I wouldn't say I bench press. And I imagine everybody in this room can bench press something, some amount of weight. Now, I, you know, the bar is like 60 pounds, so maybe you can't do that. But you could get a couple of three-pounders. You could push those up, bench pressing. And it's kind of like love. We can all love some people. But in the difficult relationships, that's like bench pressing 300 pounds. Now, if you can bench press 300, and don't raise your hand, you'll make me feel bad. But if you can bench press 300 pounds, I promise you, it's because you've been practicing. You didn't just walk up to the bench with the bar and 300 pounds on it and said, oh, yeah, and just powered that thing up. No, you started 100 and went up to 120, and then you, you kept going up, and now you can bench press 300. That's the same way it is with loving difficult people. You have to train. You can't just expect to arrive in the moment and, and hear a difficult statement or be treated poorly by someone else and just power through that challenge. No, you've got to practice. You've got to train for it. Now, in this series, we're going to be giving you the practices of love, the training exercises, really, of love that are required to do the heavy lifting that loving the difficult people in your life requires. And if, it, if, if we're going to do this, it's not because we've made some big promise like Peter did. It's because we've practiced. We've done the practical work of love. So as we come to the end of this first message of the series, I want to give you two practices of love to work on this week. And this comes from what Jesus gave his disciples. They made this big prom- promise, and Jesus said, all right, practice this. Watch and pray so that you'll not fall into temptation. The Spirit is willing. Oh, I know you guys really, you're serious about this. You're not lying to me. Peter wasn't just making this up. He really felt this. The Spirit is willing. Problem is, flesh is weak. You got to practice. You got to do the reps. So watch and pray. Just pick a difficult relationship. Bring that person to mind. If they're in the room, don't look at them. Just bring them to mind. And then do these two things. Number one, watch. Just observe them. Become curious about them. Try to learn something about them. You know, we tend to react to people first, and then we observe. We have to reverse that. We have to observe before we do anything. We tend to come to conclusions about people, and we really don't know much of what's really going on with them. Now, be careful on this. When you watch and observe them, especially if it's a difficult relationship, and you ask yourself, what's going on inside? You, you may be tempted to say, there's, there's just darkness and blackness on the inside of that person. Yeah. And that may be the case, but there's more than just that. They are people made in the image of God. Something's going on. Something's gone on in their past. Something's going on right now. Just watch. Observe. Become curious about them. And then pray. Pray for them. What, what do they need? What could you pray for them? Now, again, be careful on this. If it's a difficult person, the prayer should not be, God, please help them to stop being a jerk. <laughs> That's not a helpful prayer. Pray for something they really need. What would be a blessing to them? What, what would help them? Ask God on their behalf. Just 
Take just a few moments each day this week and practice these. Watch and pray. Now let me show you where we're going in this series briefly. Next Sunday, I'm going to talk about the three-point stance. The idea behind this is how to keep from getting knocked down by the difficult people in your life. Oftentimes, we just love this way. We open our arms up, and then we get blown away. And it's because our stance is not courageous. We're going to be talking about the stance you need to anchor yourself in in difficult relationships. And then on October 1st, I'm going to talk about the power of one. The power that you have in a relationship and the power that you do not have in a relationship. In difficult relationships, we tend to spend most of our effort on things we have absolutely no control over. And we completely ignore the things that we have control over. We're going to talk about what those are and what those aren't. Then we're going to look at the golden rules, what Jesus taught about how people do and do not change. In difficult relationships, our main attempt is to get some kind of leverage on people. You know, it's like a big wrench. We can get it on top of them and just kind of crank them, you know, to get lined up right. And there is no people-changing wedge out there that you can use to crank people in the direction you want them to go. But people do change. We're going to talk about what Jesus said about how they do and how they do not change. And then we're going to talk about asymmetrical warfare. This is using the element of surprise in a difficult relationship. Most difficult relationships, everybody's predictable. We've been having this argument and doing this dance forever. And Jesus recommends that we start doing some surprise attacks of love, guerrilla warfare love. And then we're going to talk about siege warfare. There are some situations, some people, that you have to love from behind a wall, a wall of protection. We're going to talk about when you do have to, how to set those walls up, under what conditions they are to be erected, and when they are to be taken down. So we're going to get into the details of what God says about how to love difficult people. But I wanted to begin by letting you know it's going to take courage. More courage than any other endeavor in life. So I challenge you, carve out the time, join us each Sunday, and then practice what we talk about. Let's pray. Jesus, we, um, we thank you for your love for us. And the scripture says, we love because you first loved us. The only way we can really love is to, is to be loved by you. So I pray for these difficult relationships that have come to our mind. We, we need your help. I pray that in the weeks to come as we look at the details of what your word says about how to love. I pray you'd give us insight. We thank you for all of the instruction on love. We live in a time and a culture where love is just kind of a big marshmallow term and word, and we have a feeling for it, but we really don't know what it means. pray that you'd give us instruction. You'd help us to truly love the people that you bring across our path. Because in the end, only three things remain, faith, hope, and love, and the greatest is going to be love. So we ask for your help as we work on these difficult relationships, and we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.